morning. My name is Emma, and I'm a member of this wonderful Ebby family. On this Mothering Sunday, can I take this opportunity to extend warm wishes to those of you here who are mums. May you have a great day celebrating with loved ones. And may all of us take time today to be thankful for those things that our mums have inputted into our lives. Thank you to my own mum here today for her unwavering support and encouragement. You know it means so much to me. Today I'm doing the first talk in a series that look at Jesus and a variety of encounters that he had with individuals in the run-up to his crucifixion, which we will be remembering over the Easter period. I love the really simple title that I've been given for today's talk, Jesus and a woman. And what a woman she was. Let me begin with the first verse in Mark 14, and then I'll set the scene for you. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. First of all came the Passover meal, which was an incredibly significant time for Jewish families. It was a meal that Jesus would have celebrated annually every year of his life to this point. Passover commemorated the liberation of the Hebrew slaves, their people, from Egypt all those years before, when Pharaoh finally set the Hebrew captives free after the debilitating and life-altering plagues that fell on Egypt. When they escaped, led by Moses, there was no time to let their bread rise before fleeing into the desert. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day festival that follows Passover, and it celebrates the journey of the freed people through the wilderness when they ate unleavened bread for 30 days. The fact that it was unleavened symbolized that they were not taking with them any of the contaminating influence of Egypt. Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus 12, verse 14, God said this to Moses, This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Here in Mark 14, we see those generations celebrating a day that their God set for them as a lasting ordinance, a day that they took incredibly seriously and one that they earnestly prepared for every year. How busy might the preparations have been two days before Passover, I find myself asking. Let me share with you how Jews today prepare for the Passover. Preparing for Passover usually begins a full month before the holiday arrives. Since no leavened bread may be eaten during all seven days of Passover, a special effort is made to remove all leaven from houses. This means that every room is cleaned so that all leavened products are removed. People search for breadcrumbs under the cushions of sofas and chairs, in the pockets of coats and trousers. All cookers, ovens, fridges and freezers are thoroughly cleaned. It is a massive job. Believe you me, it would have definitely been the same back in the times of Jesus. Every home would have been swept and scrubbed within an inch of its life to ensure that there was no leaven anywhere in it. All of the food that was being cooked for the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have included very specific ingredients from a list of permitted ones. 
whilst fervent communities were preparing excitedly for a much-loved festival. Unbeknown to many of them, there was a powerful and dangerous undercurrent of subterfuge and jealousy beginning to stir. So this is our scene. I imagine that it was full of hurry and packed with busyness. There must have felt like so little time to get ready. And yet nobody there realized how little time there really was left. How little time there was beyond that moment and the one when their world as they knew it would change beyond all recognition. Their next times would be full of final moments and last opportunities. They just didn't know it. Their next times would need courage, resilience, loyalty, determination. They just didn't know it. Isn't that the same for us today? None of us know what is round our very next corner. Unbeknown to any of them, the afternoon after the main Passover lamb was slaughtered in the temple, Jesus, their Jesus, would be crucified. And into this concoction of excitement, toxic opportunities, legalistic anticipation, the aromas of cooking, detailed preparations, walked a woman. Let us read the next few verses in Mark chapter 14. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made out of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Do you know what it feels like to be rebuked harshly? What about by people who you respected? Do you know what it feels like to be muttered about by voices filled with indignation? This woman did. And I find myself wondering where she found her courage. Back in the day when I was a teenager going to places like Spring Harvest, I remember seeing t-shirts on sale at stalls in the marketplace with lots of fish swimming in one way and one lone fish swimming in the opposite direction with a statement across it saying something like, are you prepared to swim against the tide? Sometimes it seems as if teenagers are prepared to do almost anything to blend in and not appear in any way different. Peer pressure is a very powerful force when you're a teenager, but it is often just as difficult to go against the flow, to swim against the tides of secularism, capitalism, materialism, apathy, when you're an adult. I've recently had such a wonderful, refreshing experience about being accepted when doing things differently. 
At the start of February, my dear friend Verity went onto Facebook, which I'm not on, and arranged for me, who am in my early 50s, to be met in a sports centre car park to go along to a local free netball taster session. Thanks, Verity. Well, it felt like stepping back into a favourite pair of slippers, and without hesitation, I gave my mobile number over so that I could be put into the netball girls' WhatsApp group. A couple of days later on that group was pasted the bank transfer details for the weekly subs to be paid into. Now, people who know me well will know that I don't want us to ever become a cashless society. I want old ladies to always be able to go into their local corner shop and pay for a pint of milk with a handful of coins. I always want to be able to go into a second-hand shop and pay one pound for a book that's caught my attention. With a bit of trepidation, I private messaged Rebecca and asked her if I could pay my three pounds in cash each week. Rebecca wrote back and said that cash was fine, plus a smiley face, really lovely. Every week when I arrive, and whilst the rest of the girls are limbering up under the floodlights and doing a couple of laps of the court, I go over to Rebecca and press a two pound and a one pound coin into her hand. I'm the only one who does. Yet yeah, I'm totally accepted in this friendly, fun, wonderful group where I feel as if I belong. It means an awful lot to me that my different way of doing things is respected. This is such a different scene from mine in Mark 14, and a poignant, moving one to me. One lone woman prepared to go against a whole crowd of tutting others. Would I have been prepared to? Would I have even been prepared to catch the eye of that brave, loving woman to smile and encouragement? from the shadowy sidelines? Or would I have been stood there amongst the mutterers, blinkered by the so-say knowledge and scriptural understanding of those chief priests and teachers of the law who slyly looked for a way to obliterate Jesus, like them tutting for all I was worth? And this is so much the rub of these verses to me. Of course the woman did know how much her alabaster jar full of nard was worth. But far more importantly, far more significantly, far more life-changingly, she knew what she was worth to Jesus. Do you know what you're worth to Jesus? Do you have any idea do you know what he would do for you? Do you know what he did do for you? In his book, Invest Your Disappointments, Paul Mallard writes this brilliant sentence. God calls us to trust him in the dark, based on what we have learned in the light. When I think about this woman who was most likely Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. I believe that merely days away from his crucifixion, Jesus had already stood the test of time in her mind and her heart. She was more than prepared to pay the cost to do something that others weren't. 
And in an instant, my mind went to another woman like that. A woman who no doubt could just as easily have felt overwhelmed by the powerful disapproval of significant and highly respected community leaders. I was a young teacher in my early 20s when I bought a mini book on the life and times of Mother Teresa. A story that I read in that little volume has stayed with me for almost 30 years now. When Mother Teresa was running Nirmdal Hiraday, a home for the dying in Calcutta, some locals became unhappy that a Christian group was working in such close proximity to a holy Hindu temple. Malicious rumours began to spread that the last rites were being administered to the dying against their wishes. One day, Dr. Ahmad, the local chief medical officer, decided to carry out an unannounced visit accompanied by a senior police official. A nun led them down a corridor where the stench of death became almost overwhelming. There, in a room at the end, hunched over a figure whose face was little more than a terrible wound, sat Mother Teresa, busy at her work. Unobserved, they watched as she used tweezers to remove maggots from the patient's wound, speaking tenderly to them and comforting them in their last hours. Outside Nirmdar Hiraday, word had spread about the official's visit and an angry crowd of agitators had gathered. The police officer stood outside the main door and told the crowd that he would indeed send Mother Teresa away. Only when they sent their mothers, their sisters, their daughters to do the work instead. And as you can imagine, the crowd dispersed very quickly and Nirmdal Hiraday and its courageous, compassionate nuns were left in peace to continue their life-changing work. And in my mind's eye, I can imagine this woman in today's passage saying the same, that if your mothers, your wives, your daughters, your cousins, your kin, step forward to anoint our beloved Lord, our sovereign king, then and only then will I move aside. And I imagine her being met with the same silence, the same shuffling of feet, the same sloping off into the shadows. This is Jesus's response to what she did for him. Mark 14, verses 6 to 8. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And so steps forward Jesus the only person who appears to accept all that Mary brought that day in her jar of love, packed full of esteem for her saviour and Lord, who she believed. 
But you see, it was only one person's acceptance and ultimate sacrifice that counted at the end of the day. And it's the same for us here now. No matter what our foibles are, no matter what our differences, no matter how much we are surrounded by disapproval and harsh rebukes, we are saved by Jesus, his acceptance of us and his love for us. I so love the way that it was one woman in a whole crowd who was the standout to Jesus in this scene. It brought to mind a wonderful reminder that my mum gave me in March when Johnny and I were very unsettled by some news regarding some major changes to the living arrangements of the girl who we respite foster when she turns 18 in the summer. My mum reminded me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, when he says that the shepherd will leave the 99 sheep who are safe and will go out to find and rescue the one who needs to be saved. The one matters and will always matter to Jesus. In his book 316, Max Lucado writes this truth. The ratio between those who missed Jesus and those who sought him is thousands to one. But the ratio between those who sought him and those who found him was one to one. All who sought him found him. But thinking about that analogy of the shepherd leaving the 99 to find the one, isn't it sometimes that when we're one of the 99, safe in the warm fold, we want the shepherd staying with us, the faithful, not going out and about on a mercy mission? Doesn't it sometimes seem as if we want to keep him to ourselves, even though we've got each other and the benefit of belonging? But what about when we're the one. When we're a long way from home, isolated, lost, and we haven't got the strength to even find Jesus, all that we want is to be found. This morning, if you feel separated from the main group, if you feel isolated, lost, I want you to know today that you're not on your own. Jesus leaves the 99 and he comes to find you. When I see the woman of Mark 14 surrounded by people looking down on her and I worry that she might have felt on her own, one woman defying a crowd, I know that she was never alone. Jesus was right there beside her, respecting her, valuing her, recognizing the incredible, brave, an honouring person that she was. This is what Jesus says in verse 9. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I've talked before about the importance of remembering, of remembering the people who have shaped us and made us the people who we are today. How do you remember, honour and celebrate 
the bravery of those who have inspired you by showing that they have had the courage to follow their convictions. I want to finish this morning with the last verses that I've been given to talk about, Mark 14, verses 10 and 11, which contain the most incredible irony, the most stark portrayal of the difference between the two sides of the same coin, which I've never noticed positioned quite like this before. Then, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to, to, pray, to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Here, on one hand, we have a woman who is harshly chastised for the money that people see as being wasted on Jesus by her. She couldn't have lavished more on her saviour who had recently begun predicting his imminent death. Contrast this with Judas, one of the 12 disciples from Jesus' inner circle, who was now seeking to hasten Jesus' demise, and all for the sake of money. And I asked the question, what was Mary prepared to do with her money, contrasted with what was Judas prepared to do for his money. Two very different sides of the same coin. What and who are people prepared to betray for money? How many knots has money got some people tied up in? How far would you go or not go? For money. What about us being those who aren't shocked or even better aren't stopped from doing something amazing because we've counted the cost to us beforehand too carefully, too closely and aren't courageous enough to carry it through? When are we too afraid of the tuts, the disapproval from those we respect, too constrained by the fear of the harsh rebukes. Today has been in memory of a woman and of her saviour who she loved and who she believed could change the world because he had already changed hers. Today, may you know that he can change yours I'd like to finish with part of a prayer by Sir Francis Drake that is such a call to us to be courageous and to be brave enough to step out like the woman of Mark 14 did from our often entrenched comfort zones. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to shore. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly 
to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars.